We are in a narrative called the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 19 and kind of work our way through the story. If you were here last week, Easter morning, we got a chance to look at the conversion of a man named Saul, who was a Christian killer, a Jesus hater. Um, He had been giving his approval to the murder and execution of of disciples, followers of Jesus. So Jesus meets him on a road to a town called Damascus. He radically transforms his life, hence we pick up this story. Now, I'm going to take a unique approach, not unique necessarily, but, but a different approach than just picking up Saul's story and continuing on. We, we've got another 19 chapters to talk about Saul, the apostle, uh, Paul. Um, so we've got lots of time to talk about him, but there's a particular character we're going to talk about today and spend our time on. Let me set it up this way. There's a very good chance that somewhere either in your past or possibly in your future, you're going to meet someone who has a tremendous positive impact on your life. Someone you're doing life with right now, possibly a teacher, a parent, a friend, a coworker, possibly even a stranger. Somebody you intersect with in your life um, makes a clear difference in your life in the good way. There's also a potential that some of you in here have met the opposite of that, someone who has kind of sucked the life out of you, someone who has, uh, I don't know, rejected you, told you 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 don't make the cut, you don't measure up, and they've done the opposite of what I described first. They have left you defeated, okay? Today we get to look at a man who is the kind of person that everybody in this room would say, I want him as a friend. A man's name is Barnabas. We meet him for the first time in chapter four of Acts. His name really is Joseph. And I'll guarantee you don't remember his name, but you remember what he did. Because in that early church scene, when when God is doing radical things with these new believers, they were all sharing what they had and everyone giving what they own to meet the needs of the poor. Well, it's Joseph, Barnabas, who shows up in chapter four, who sells a piece of property to meet the needs of, of the church. Remember this story? Remember this man? Nobody remembers Joseph. That's great. That's great. Thanks for coming. Um, Anyway, that's where we first meet him. Um, He has a great reputation. I'm going to prove that to you today. But in this chapter, chapter 9, in this section, we meet him again. And he shows up here and probably the next four chapters in a fairly significant way. in a very special way. So let's, let's deal with context. Let's deal with the story of Saul a little bit before I make some points about this man named Barnabas. We're going to pick it up in verse 19 and go to verse 25. <clears throat> Again, this is right after the conversion of Saul, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. He says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus, speaking about Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night and in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Here's the story of Saul, just to get us caught up. This man has been radically changed. If there's a word to describe Saul before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, it would be, let's say, persecutor. If there's a word to describe him post, it would be proclaimer. 
this, this man goes from someone who accuses Jesus of being dead and a liar and a blasphemer to the living son of God. Something crazy radical has happened to this, this man named Saul. And before we just kind of skip over that, we get chances to, to look at his life, like I said, over the next 19 chapters. I think there's some obvious things to the immediacy of Paul's response and life that I think we need to ask or make some, some points about in our own life. One is, and you've heard this said many times before here, that if you know enough of the good news to be saved by it, you know enough of the good news to tell other people about it. There is a list, kind of this unconscious, unspoken list of reasons why we don't engage our world in the words of Jesus, and it's this. One is, they're not gonna like it. Two is, I don't know enough to do it well. And we make a thousand excuses why we don't engage with the story. Here's what the apostle did. Here's what Saul did. Comes to his senses about Jesus and immediately he tells others about the risen Lord. If you know enough to be saved by it, you can declare it. Agreed? There's other thing that we need to make a point of and we get to watch this in his life over the next coming weeks. And that is that in this one depiction, we see this kind of experience of the three stages of every Christian life. And, and if you've lived long enough as a Christian, you're going to amen this. I know you will, because this is how it goes. We start out in our faith with this thought, this is easy. I got this. You end up moving into the second stage called, this is, this is difficult. And you end up finishing with, this is impossible. Is any Christian amening that? Like, that's our journey. I can do this. God, you just got a couple of adjustments. Change me a little bit. Man, I'm yours. I'm passionate. I'm into it. I'm ready to run. And only discover the hard things, the difficult things. Well, in verses 20 to 22, Paul is in stage one. <laughs> he has met the risen Lord. He's out telling people about Jesus. He's having an impact. This is easy. Verse 23, this is difficult because they're plotting to kill him. He's experiencing now the persecution and the suffering and the rejection of which he participated in against the church. And that's the second stage of his life. It's interesting, in the real clear narrative of what's going on here, there's a, there's a blank space between verses 22 and 23, and there's a narrative that fits in there, of which Paul fills in for us in Galatians chapter 1. So he's telling a story, Luke is telling the story of, of Saul and his intention isn't to give us a biography of Saul, he's just talking about the church. That's why he doesn't deal with the details. But Paul on the other hand in chapter one fills in the blanks for us with these thoughts, okay? He says, but when God who set me apart from birth called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach in him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately to Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. That little section that Paul of his own testimony makes in Galatians 1 fits in that state, statement when many days had passed in, in verse 23. There is a lot going on in his life. It looks like it goes from one thing to another, but years now have passed in Saul's life and, and God is doing some things. In fact, verse 23 says that the radical change in Saul was so great that, that they plotted to kill him. The, the idea of plotted was many attempts they tried and they tried to get rid of Saul over and over again. And there's a good reason for that because the Jews were threatened by Paul. 
Because what Paul used to present was law, legalism, try and do. And now he's saying Jesus and grace. And he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And if he's saying Jesus alone, what does it say about everybody else hanging around the edges? They were all confronted with their life being a waste of time. They needed to deal with Jesus. And so he was a threat to their held convictions. And so they wanted to kill him. And so many attempts were made on his life. Well, we know from the story that three years after Paul's conversion, he stayed mostly in Damascus in this region, although Galatians 1 tells us that he made a journey to Arabia, to desert places near Mount Sinai, sort of Elijah-esque. And many, many of the commentators would suggest there's a good reason why Saul went there, and that was because he was going there um, to study or to learn. Or it's kind of like a modern-day version of seminary, I guess. I, I can just picture him grabbing all his Old Testament scrolls and ending up in the desert going, okay, what is, this, what is this all about? And I think there's a clear reason why he had to go into Arabia to learn. is because like all new believers, Saul was maybe more true of him than most. He was smart, he was called, he was convicted, but he wasn't ready. Do you understand? He, he knew what he believed, and he was ready to go for Jesus, but he hadn't sorted out all the pieces. So I can just imagine him grabbing these scrolls, and off the desert he goes, and he rolls them out, and he deals with the very question that he asked Jesus the moment he met him. Who are you? Jesus said to him, I am Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And I'll bet you, I'll bet you Saul spent all those years filing through the Old Testament text to find Jesus. If you're the one, if you're the Messiah, oh man, he's here. He's in, he's in Isaiah, he's in the prophets, he's all over the place. Jesus shows up, the Redeemer King shows up, the sacrificial lamb shows up over and over again. I know who Jesus is now, and this Old Testament mind gets converted with a Jesus lens, and it changes everything he's ever known, and he needed time to, to get there. And it's no different than, than our experience. We get to know our Jesus, and it does something to us. There's two aspects to this. Not only do we get to know him, but the reality of who Christ is really tells us who we are, doesn't it? There's this kind of reflection that happens. What, who am I and what is my problem? What are my needs and what are my desires? It, it kind of exposes some things. So not only is Paul learning from an Old Testament lens on who Jesus really is, but watch this. Paul had an issue, a very common demand. He was a proud man. He had reasons, humanly speaking, to be so. Um, he was named Saul after King Saul. He was a Benjamite. Benjamites had like a battle cry, you know, first in battle, kind of like the Marine Corps. We're the toughest. He carried that around with him. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he called himself, a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. As far as achievements, he went faster, harder, and better than all of his contemporaries. Saul had a pride problem, and it had to get worked out. So off he goes to meet Jesus, to find out who he really is. It's interesting that his name, I guess he changes it himself. He chooses a name for himself from Saul to Paul. Paul means small. If you, if you want to try to have a daily, constant reminder of what I'm about, what I'm about, I'm nothing. I desire to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I am small. Try that for a name. Name your child small. See how it goes. And Paul took it himself, or Saul took it himself. 
because I think the gospel had not only transformed him lens about how a man can know God, but it transformed how he saw himself. And it clearly was a season where Paul had to come to grips with, with his calling. Man, you're, I'm calling you. I'm setting you apart for two things. I want you to go to the Gentiles, and I want you to suffer. Get your head around that. Hebrew, Hebrews, Gentiles, mm, not so much fun. And suffering, no. So this season, these three years, this desert seminary that, that Saul is going through is strategic for the Lord, for him. So the text makes it clear that after this time in Arabia, Paul returned to this place called Damascus. And after three years, he went to Jerusalem to be introduced to the disciples there. And it went really, really bad. Look at verse 26. And when they came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Okay, he, that phrase he attempted meant that they, he tried multiple times to get their attention, to convince them that something had happened, that they shouldn't be afraid of him, that he had good intentions, not bad intentions. And the text makes it clear that the disciples refused him because they didn't trust him. And who can blame them? Would you have trusted him? Listen, Saul, you, you want in? I have gone to too many funerals of my brothers who you were a part of killing. You want in? I'm not certain I can trust you. My heart is broken over the loss of my friends and my loved ones, and it's because of you. Saul was a changed man. We know that. He was obviously redeemed by Jesus, but his past caused this giant shadow to be cast over his life. And the only way these disciples could see him was through that shadow. Like that's the bad man who wants to lock everybody up and destroy everything about Jesus and his followers. That's who he is. That's who he is. It's in that climate and in that culture and in that time, the man named Barnabas shows up. And he creates a ripple in the church that you and I, we don't even know his name really, We've never even considered him. But you and I now, 2,000 years later, are still experiencing what he did for Saul and for the church. Look at verses 27 through 28. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas came to the disciples in Jerusalem and put his reputation on the line to vouch for this man named Saul that they were all terrified of. I'm speaking for him. And according to Galatians chapter one, we see that Barnabas introduced this Saul to Peter and even the brother of Jesus, James. And this is really big. This is so huge. Because of that one effort by Barnabas, the reality is that Saul is welcomed into fellowship in Jerusalem. And history has been changed. One man's act. And the text tells us in Galatians that he stayed two weeks in Jerusalem with Peter. I would, if there's any meeting, I suppose, maybe in the top three meetings, I would have loved to be in the room. Peter, <laughs> Peter and Saul, two hot-headed, expressive, passionate, tough guys. I can just imagine one defending, like defending, I was with Jesus. I walked in his steps. I did the things. I saw the miracles. And 
Saul making his case for how Jesus is seen in all the law, and they were just kind of, you know, they were alpha males in one space. I would have loved to have been there just for, for fun. Anyway, that's me. But what Barnabas did here gets very little press, and yet I think it's one of the most significant actions in the New Testament, and we reap its benefit. Now, let me tell you for a second just who Barnabas is, because we're going to have a conversation about encouragement this morning. Um, Because we don't know him very well, let me let the narrative tell you about him. Chapter 11 of Acts tells us a small little section of his reputation and what he did. In Acts chapter 11, this is what's said, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking... uh, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking non-Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number of who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent, here he is, Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted or encouraged, that's the word, encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Verse 24, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In chapter 13, you don't have to turn there. Chapter 13 begins the missionary journeys of of Saul, Paul, and Barnabas. And they go, and you can see even in the kind of transitionary part of this missionary journey, Barnabas takes sort of a growing back seat to Saul's growing ability. In fact, in moments where he's preaching and being winsome with the gospel, Barnabas just kind of moves away and says, you go, man, you go. Wonderful depiction of how the encourager blesses Saul. In fact, in chapter 15, um, another great illustration of of Barnabas' approach with people is there's another kind of hidden story in chapter 13. When they went out on the first missionary journey, you not only had Saul and Barnabas, but you had this young man named John Mark. You hardly get a paragraph in before it says that John Mark split and went home. They speculate why John Mark left, but most would say he chickened out, got homesick, blah, 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 he quit. John Mark splits the missionary journey. Chapter 15 Paul and Barnabas say, hey, let's do that tour again. Let's go visit the churches again. And Barnabas says, hey, let's bring John Mark. And Paul, it says, the text says, Paul and Barnabas got an argument over whether John Mark should come. Paul, the hard-headed one, said, no, man, he's a quitter. He bailed out on the missionary journey. He should have no right to go with us. But Barnabas stepped at the pump and said, no, no, he should go. In fact, if you don't think he should go, I'll take him, you take Silas, and we'll do this journey separately. And that's exactly what happened. Every time you see this man Barnabas, he's building somebody up. He's defending someone. He's encouraging someone. He's believing in someone else. Every time Barnabas was an encourager, the the word encourage means to put courage into. The opposite is also true. It's to siphon courage out of. (laughs) We don't siphon many things in our life, but we all know what it's like to have courage sucked out of us because someone said an unbelieving word. 
someone said something about you or held you to a bad reputation, a past thing about your life or just trapped you in an identity and said, well, that's who you are and you're never going to be any different and suddenly you just kind of dissipate. I don't have to tell you how much we need encouragement, do I? And I probably don't have to tell you that it's also an imperative, a command that all of us are to do in the church towards one another, to encourage one another. In fact, Paul is, uh, many would say, uh, not, you can't be certain, but he had a part to play in Hebrews writing, but Hebrews chapter three sounds like him, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Here's what I know, because I've met a lot of people in the church. Some of you are just like Barnabas. Barnabas, I believe, had a gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of encouragement. He couldn't help himself. It was him doing him, just natural, easy, no problem, didn't have to think about it. That's why everywhere you see him, someone's being encouraged because he was just doing what God made him to do. But here's what's also true. God doesn't necessarily give all of us the gift of encouragement, right? Nevertheless, it's a command for all of us to participate in encouragement. And that's what we want to talk about for the rest of our time together. I think some of us need help with this concept of encouragement. So here's what we do. Let me just give you some practical things, like parts and pieces of what we do in our encouragement of one another, okay? Here's the first one. We encourage each other when we remind each other of the promises of God. The word of God is what encourages each other. If you look at someone um, and see someone is hurting, one of the best things, if not the very best thing you can do for them is remind them what God has promised for them. Our God does not change and he will never fail, amen? So for you to tell them, here's what God committed himself to, what does that do to the heart of the discouraged? Fans faith, doesn't it? Here's kind of how, how it goes. Without remembering God's promises, we major on feelings. I feel like this. I feel separated, I feel alone, I feel burdened, I feel weighted down, I feel, I feel. And it doesn't mean you're not in comparison to other people, but here's what the word of God does. It says a better word than how you feel. Because it says that God doesn't waste things. It says that God is very strategic and very precise in how he allows things into our life to influence us, to transform us into the image of Jesus. God is not wasting your suffering. And the word of God tells you in the midst of your weight and your suffering, don't forget Believe. Don't forget he's for you. Don't, don't forget that these things, even though you don't want them, he's using them for you. And the ripple of your story goes beyond you. And here's what we all know too when we're dealing with us in the story. <laughs> the adversary, Satan, he's somewhere always lurking in the background and he says things to us in our failures that sounds like you probably shouldn't be here. A real Christian wouldn't do, wouldn't say, wouldn't be that person. There's no way God's love could get that. He's growing tired of you. You've been here before. And on and on the accuser goes. On and on the twisting goes. Here's what the word of God does. The word of God pushes back against the lies. Every lie that wants to kind of circumvent or undermine the gospel of God's grace alone, by faith alone, the word of God stands against it. And the text is clear, he flees from us. And here's the other reality of the word and how it affects us. It makes new people. 
I don't know how else to say this, but, but without God's faithful word, we are not transformed. Whether it be the word of the Holy Spirit to bring us to life or the word of God that transforms our understanding of ourselves or him, it makes us new. So if you really want to encourage someone, then start with the promises of God. I can just hear Barnabas with, with Paul. And I gotta admit, as strong as Paul seems to be in every text that I read about him, I gotta assume that there were dark moments where he heard Barnabas say, hey, trust in the Lord, dude, and, and don't lean on your own understanding. Give yourself to him, and he's gonna, he's gonna lead you. I promise you, Saul, don't, don't quit on this. I can just kind of perceive Saul looking around and saying, okay, well, here's my past. I told you last week, I gotta, I gotta just imagine what kept Paul up at night was remembering the ways in which he tried to stop the church and stop the king. And I'll bet you the past was trying to bully him and I'll bet you that every time he tried to put his foot in the church water and they rejected him, I'll bet you all these things kind of came together, right? And I'll bet you somewhere in the background is Barnabas saying, hey, don't forget, Paul, what Jesus said. To any that received him, he gave the right to be the children of God. You received him, you're his child. Don't let anything or anybody tell you different. You belong to him. If anybody should know this, you should. He came after you, remember? And I'll bet you Barnabas played a role. I think Barnabas played a role with the disciples. He reminded them that Jesus had a transforming touch, that he's committed to changing all of them, even in the most unexpected ways. I'll, I'm certain that it was Barnabas who said to the apostles, hey, 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 stop, stop pushing back against Saul. Because the grace of God superabounds for even one like him. Can't you just picture it? Like you, you think that you didn't cross any lines that God should reject you for. You're certain he did. Let me, let me tell you about God's grace. It overcomes even his past. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the good news. First thing, remind each other of this wonderful word, this promise. Second thing. I think we encourage when we stand with someone who's alone. Paul was alone. First of all, he was blinded after he met Jesus, and then he spent some time in the desert. When he came back, he was rejected by the church. He was absolutely alone. And Barnabas stood with him when no one else wanted to be stained by him. And maybe you and I have had this experience. Maybe. Maybe you've done something stupid, something sinful. The people that were in your corner get away from your corner because they don't want to get you on them. Does that happen? Can it happen? Certainly it can. Barnabas didn't split. Maybe it's not something sinful. Maybe it's just something hard, like you're dealing with life and your life is messy and your life is difficult and your life is challenging and the people that you thought were in your corner go, man, it's just too much weight for me. So they get some distance. So we, we know things like that. Here's what an encourager does. Ready? An encourager stays put. It's not complicated. Barnabas wasn't going anywhere. Didn't matter what Paul was or what experiences he was going through or the rejection that he felt from the disciples, he was staying put. We want to encourage. Here's the third thing. We encourage others when we overlook an offense. Barnabas did that with Saul in his past. He forgave him for his attack of the church and when others wanted to either get their distance or get their possible revenge on Saul, 
Um, he didn't. He forgave this new believer, and you know what forgiveness does. It set him free. Every one of us, every one of us have sinned. Not just against God, but we have reflected that on other people. And most of us have probably felt someone say to you at some point in your life, I forgive you, i.e., you're free. I release you. I will remember it no more. It's no longer in my file. I have forgotten it. It is the human way to express how God treats our sin. I will remember it no more. As far as the east is from the west, it's no longer accounted for. It's done because it was done in Jesus. Here's what we know. Forgiveness truly does free people. Proverbs 19 says, it's, it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. You know what that's like? To be freed from what you were, what you've done? Barnabas did that with Saul. One, one last little, I guess, helpful encouragement to you about encouragement would be an encourager builds up the significance of another person. That's what an encourager does. Barnabas made time for Saul in spite of all the potential obstacles. Barnabas placed Saul in positions of service and significance. Every time you turn around from this point on, it is Barnabas going, no man, you first. You, you preach. You lead. You say. He just kept making a platform. He let Paul know that he was valued. He let Paul know that God had a plan for his life. Do you realize how many people, maybe even in just this room, who feel like they don't matter? This again goes back to the potential of the adversary saying, no, what you should do is sit this one out and all you can do is what you're doing now. And the reason why you don't matter is because of where you've been and what you've done. People feel insignificant and they feel like they have nothing to offer. And what transformation happens to them when somebody actually believes in them and says, no, 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 that, that doesn't shape your future. The gospel shapes your future. Barnabas was that kind of guy. He was an encourager. He stood with Paul when nobody else would. He was absolutely alone in his support of Paul. He saw a potential, a calling in Paul that no one else did. And he treated Paul like a child of God and not like a son of the devil like most of them accused him of being. He's one of us. He's uniquely gifted. He's uniquely called. He's legitimate. Believe in him. Barnabas really was the kind of friend that we all would really want. So if you want tips on how to sharpen this whole command, this imperative to encourage one another all the more, even daily, then let me suggest to you that you need to realize how much encouragement means to you. And I'll bet you it'll have an impact on how much you encourage others. Ever been encouraged? Not enough. <laughs> ah, see, we have got a deficiency. Yeah, if we remember anywhere in our life when someone said a kind word, a supportive word uh, for us, then we'll be better encouragers. We have to remember the times when someone said, hey man, I know, I know that's where you've been. I know that's how you've dropped the ball. I know, but, but and they encourage you based on the strengths that you have or based on the, the ways in which you've grown and they kind of help you move past whatever label you live with, right? Very interesting today, I had a, in the eight o'clock service, 
a man was here. He's 40 years old now, but he was a student in my ministry in junior high back in the old ages. He was here from a church up in Washington trying to check out Redemption Church and what, what do we do and all that stuff. I haven't seen him in 22 years or something like that. And uh, at that church that I was in, I had a leader in that church say something like this to me almost 30 years ago. You're never going to be in ministry. Now, that goes on the list of things not to do, by the way. Just suck it right out of you. That's that siphoning effect right there. But I had a friend who said a better word, who knew me, even in my immaturity, in my unformed, unwise, knuckleheadish life. He knew me and said, keep going, keep trying, keep doing. I see it. I love it. Keep going. He didn't, he didn't do much sophisticated work. He didn't give me books to read. He didn't do anything. He just was my friend and believed in me. That's sort of what we're talking about here. If you remember what it's like to get that, then it should be easy to replicate it in other people's lives, to give it away, okay? And also, this is a very helpful technique as well. Don't forget who we are. We are sinners. We are sinners. We don't, we don't stand on our own two feet in anything. We're here because of the grace of God, amen? That's how we should remember this. We don't do everything perfect. We still have our bad days. But if we remember our weaknesses, it will be easier to overlook the weaknesses of other people. Agreed? Okay, here's the second thing. And I say this with some cautions and conditions. Share your struggles with others. And here's, here's what I mean by careful. is I'm, I'm not a big fan of constantly gutting your story on everybody you meet. I think there needs to be wisdom applied. But I do know how this experience works. Sin has a way of shoving you down in a hole and telling you you're the only one. Does it not? And by God's sovereign plan, he puts you in a situation where someone you love, someone you admire, some leader you're following, somebody in your life says something similar to what you're dealing with. And suddenly in your heart, there's a little voice that says, I'm not alone. We're fighting the good fight. God is perfecting all of us. I, I thought you had it made. I thought I was the loser. I mean, has that not happened to all of us in here where someone shares a word or a piece of their story? I don't think we should tell everybody everything. I'm just saying that once in a while, if, if someone needs to be picked up, tell them, hey, man, I'm there with you. I've been there, done it. I think that builds up people as well, gives people a new kind of sense of hope. Here's the third thing I think we can do. Try to spotlight the good and try to overlook the bad. Here would be my come to Jesus moment. I confess I'm not good at this. Uh, you know how Barnabas I believe, has the gift of encouragement. Whatever the opposite of that is, I've got that. I, for whatever reason, I assess things first. Things are broken first. Things got to get better first. Things aren't healthy right away. I confess that is my problem and my weakness, but if you share that, you're one of those people who spotlights the negative before you see the positive. Can I just suggest as we deal with one another that we look to kind of catch others in doing good versus doing bad. And that it would look like um, our interest in their impact in our world and in our life. We can, we can do this, and after all, the scriptures mandate that we do it. As followers of Christ, we have every reason to work hard at encouraging people around us. We know how much God loves his people, right? Ten of us know, okay? We know how much he loves his people. 
And we also know how much these people need to know that God loves them, right? And watch this. The mechanism that God has given for us to know that is encouragement to one another, to tell each other about the love of God. We are the extension. We are the ambassadors of God's love to one another. Now, I don't do this very often, but I think it's an interesting exercise. In a narrative like this, I play out the what-ifs. I know that's silly because I believe in God's sovereignty and his plan and what he plans will happen. So I'm not suggesting for one minute that if one little molecule moved that there would be no Saul and there'd be no story. God had a plan for his people and his church, got it. But let's just play the game for a second. What if? What if, what if Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and never runs into Barnabas? What if Saul goes back to Jerusalem and his attempts to be accepted kind of keep going on and on and on and they keep saying, no, no, man, you're, you're the bad guy. There, there's a possibility then that leaders would have never accepted him. The missionary journeys that we're about to experience would have never happened. 14 books of the New Testament would never have been written. What if? What if? Now, here's what we do know. Saul became the leader of the church. He became the chief missionary to the Gentile nations of whom now, thousands of years later, we are the recipients. He did write two-thirds of the New Testament. He penned the words in Romans that declares how God saves people. It's significant. And here's what else we know. God in his sovereignty used a man you don't even care about and probably didn't know about an hour ago to do that work in Saul's life. Think of the ripple. Think of the ripple of encouragement. I don't, I have no idea what God would do. I, in this case, it was it's startling, but what if? What, what if God maybe would take your kind words? What if he did that? And what if he changed a thousand people with your kind words? And those thousand people had children, and those children had children, and on and on we go. Hundreds of years later, I suppose that ripple would still have an impact. What if, what if God would use your kind words to lead someone to faith in Jesus? What if maybe your kind words would lead someone to not give up on life and living? Maybe your kind words would give someone a perspective that the adversary was desperately trying for them not to see. What, what if? What if God would use your kind words to lead somebody who would have such an impact on the world it would blow your mind? I did something really weird this weekend. Um, I watched three documentaries, and you have to be really old in, in church stuff to know what I'm about to say now. It was documentaries on the Jesus Freak movement of the 60s and 70s. Okay, 8 o'clock, all knew what I was talking about. So... Um, but there was a movement starting in about 60-ish, 67 or whatever that grew through maybe middle 70s that was pretty significant on the West Coast and around the country where um, God was just doing crazy stuff. Now, here's what I noticed. These were, not, these were not documentaries working for each other. They were separate documentaries. But as I watched them, I could see a thread. That guy said something to that guy. And that guy witnessed to that guy. And that guy got saved in his church. And that guy played a song. And that guy became this. And suddenly, here we are now. I'm not kidding. Here we are in Gilbert, Arizona, 2017. And we can trace our line to some of that. 
it blows your mind what God does. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that you have no idea what God can do with your encouragement. You have no idea. And I suppose we'll never know unless we try. Would you agree? So we've asked God when we started this study in Acts, make us the exceptional church. And so far we've thrown in things like our gospel perspective, our understanding, our, our passion to tell the others and prayer. Let's add one more. Let's ask God to make us an encouraging church. Can we do that? Let's pray together. God, thank you for the testimony, the words, the story of Barnabas and Saul. God, I confess I'm weak at this, so Lord, help me. Help us to be the kind of people that see what the gospel and what Jesus can do in the life of another. Help us to build one another up every day until Jesus returns. We pray in Christ's name, amen.